Question, do you see God's hands as hands that are kind of limp? Like he's not going to lift a finger to help you. Or maybe hands that punish you, harm you, hurt you. Because you, you got out of line. You did something you're not supposed to do. Or, or maybe his hands are kind of like stiff-arming you. Stiff-arming you. Keeping you away. Or do you see God's hands as hands that are loving, kind, gracious, and helpful? How do you see God's hands? You know, um, in my life, I've been asking God to do some things for me and for some people that I love. And it just seems like, uh, you know, I'm praying, knocking on heaven's door, and God's not listening. God's not answering. He's not coming through for me the way I want him to come through for me. And somebody asked me that question or a similar question a couple of weeks ago. How do you see God's hands? And so uh, if this side of the stage represents God's loving, caring, gracious hands, and this side of the stage represents God's hands are kind of limp or harmful or stiff-arming, and you said to me, hey, Rick, okay, I want you to walk to the side of the stage that you feel like best represents God's hands in terms of your own experience right now. I got to be honest, I'd, I'd walk over here because I'm praying for God to do things and for over a year and nothing has happened the way I want it to happen. Now, I understand if you're kind of bothered by that, <laughs> that you get up and walk out if you don't want to hear a message from a messy pastor like me, okay? I'd understand if you didn't want to hear that today. But I don't think I'm alone. Come on, we all feel that way sometimes. We go through seasons of life where we get these blessings from God and He just like blesses our socks off. And then we go through some seasons of life where it just feels like we're unheard and uncared for. So how do you honestly, I mean, I know what the Sunday school answer is, but how do you honestly experience God's hands? Over 25 times, we read this phrase, under the sun in Ecclesiastes. And if you live your life with a, just an under the sun mentality, with the thought that what happens to us here is what matters most, then it's possible for us to become Wounded and bitter and cynical because life doesn't always go the way we want it to go. But if you can live your life with an above the sun attitude, with an eternal perspective, then we can actually live joyful, hopeful, faithful lives. And at the root of it all, I think, is our view of God. Is He distant? Is He punishing? Is He uninterested? Or is He loving, kind, and gracious? So today I want you to open your Bibles, I want you to fire up your apps, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And while you're turning there, I want us to do some brainstorming. I want to hear from you because I don't want to be the only person on that side of the stage today. I want to hear from you. Uh, what are some things that have happened to you? Or what are some things that have happened to some of the people that you know that make you sometimes doubt that God is a God of love? That His hand might be against you rather than for you. So let's just make a long list, okay? What are some things that are going on out there? Talk to me. Selfishness. 
What's that? Health issues. All right. Struggles with health. Say it again. All right, prodigals. All right, I have prayed over and over again for that young man, yet young woman, to come over the crest of the hill, and I'm going to be, but I still don't see him coming. What else? All right, world leaders and family issues. Family issues, money problems. And I heard somebody over here say, drugs. And somebody over here said, all right, doubt. I doubt that things are going to change. All right, couple, I got room for a couple more. Incarceration. I'm just going to say prison. I can't spell incarceration. <laughs> Don't show me up over there. All right, work problems. All right. I got no more room. But we could go, hey, we could go on for a long time about this, right? All these things that happen to us that make us come here rather than there. And so what, what are we supposed to do with all of that? We have good reason, based on our experiences in this life, to doubt that God's hand is for us. That He is loving, gracious, and kind. And the author of Ecclesiastes, you ready for this? He points that out. That's what's happening in chapter 9. Okay, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. All right, that's a good place to be, right? But whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. So all this in the verse refers to everything he's been talking about before and probably the things he's going to talk about later. So he's got the whole range of human experience in mind. And he says, whatever happens to us, whether you're loved by some people or hated by other people, it's not ultimately in your control. Now, he's not saying we're puppet, puppets. We, we, we have responsibility and accountability. Those things are real. But we can't control life circumstances. Our lives, our experiences are in the hand of God. We're not the ultimate architects of our future. God is. We call this being in the hand of God, the providence of God, or the sovereignty of God. And then the second London Confession, uh, that is defined. It says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, organizes, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least, that means me, by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created. He governs in accordance with his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Now that's a mouthful, but what he's saying is that we are in the wise, strong, good, merciful hand of God. But his hand doesn't often, doesn't always feel good and wise and merciful, does it? Look at verse 2. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. To the good and the evil. The same stuff happens to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices, to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. 
So think about the bad things that happen to us all, whether you know Jesus or not. Rainy vacations, slippery roads, leaky faucets, bee stings, monthly bills, blown tires, broken legs, chronic pain, unstable jobs. It all happens to everybody, whether you know Jesus or not. What we believe, how we behave, doesn't have anything to do with what life has in store. You think, oh, time out. Wait a minute, Lord. I thought if I were righteous and if I was good and if I would just clean up my act and if I would come to church at 930 on Sunday morning, you're going to make life work for me. And if that's not the way things work, why should I bother to be good? Verse 3, well, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to us all. I mean, we could all be verbally abused. We could all suffer severed relationships. We could all go through broken marriages. We could all have prodigals or family issues or money problems. We could, and, and this seems evil to us, Right? It feels wrong if the same pain happens to everybody, whether they go to church or not. Because really, we want to manipulate God. I want to manage God. I want to try to make God make my life work. I want economic prosperity. I want good health. But he says, you don't know what's coming your way. And so we cry, why me? Why us? Why is life so stinking hard? Why do things have to turn out this way? And and why am I in this state so long? And you get no answer. get no clarity. Only more questions. So our efforts to understand what God is doing and why God is doing it, it just hits a dead end. Last part of verse 3, Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. He says, we all have darkness in our hearts. And we all make dumb decisions in this life. And we probably all heard somebody say, you're going to do that? Are you crazy? And then after we live our lives, it's all over. We're dead. We die. Thank you for coming to church. Remember the, remember the little bedtime prayer, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. Now that's kind of a somber prayer if you think about it. There's a second verse I bet you didn't know. I first heard it from John Ordberg, a pastor in California. I want you to imagine a parent kneeling by their child's bed praying this prayer with their child. Our days begin with trouble here. Our life is but a span, and cruel death is always near. How frail a thing is man. Good night, darling. (laughs) Sweet dreams. (laughs) There was a time when parents wanted their kids to know that life is short. That's the business of this life to prepare for the next life. Verse 4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. (laughs) 
Now, a lion is the king of the beasts. A lion is supposed to be respected, even in the ancient world. But in the ancient world, a dog wasn't a furry, fluffy little pet. A dog was a snarling scavenger, a despised animal. So he's saying here that even a despised dog, if it's alive, is better than a respected lion if it's dead. Why is that? Verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Now that is a bleak under the sun perspective. Because he's saying here, when you, when you die, you're done. There's no reward. Nobody remembers you. The loving things you did, gone. The bad things you did, gone. Any influence that you had, gone. So his typical perspective is the uh, under-the-sun perspective. It's like you're, you're temporary and there's no life after death. He does say in chapter 3, God put eternity in our hearts, but most of the wisdom that he dispenses is under-the-sun wisdom. But you know what? We're not under-the-sun people, are we? We're above-the-sun people. In fact, it says in Colossians chapter 3 that we're to set our minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Yes, we're going to die, but we will know something and we will have a reward and God will not forget us. Now, skip down to verse 11. We'll come back to 7 later. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. Now, 99 times out of 100, Usain Bolt is going to win. But fast runners can get blisters. They can get sick the night before the race. They can have bad days. So the fastest runner doesn't always win. And what this means is that some people get the breaks and some people don't. And we don't know who's who. And we don't like it, though, when we don't get the breaks, right? Well, I'm better at selling than she is, but she sells $500,000 houses and I sell $100,000 houses. Why is that? We need to stop creating this unrealistic world where, we're able to con where we are able to control things. We can't manipulate God. Strongsville pastor Dave Collins says this, God is not your celestial babysitter who does everything possible to make sure that your life never has any ugly moments for you. Verse 11, but time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance happen to them all. Now, the word chance is, I think, an unfortunate translation. It could be translated occurrences or events. Time and events happen to us all. Because if you're living in the hands of God, it's not chance or luck. We sometimes say, oh, I just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Not true. What happens to us, good or bad, is not luck. We put our confidence in the loving, providential hand of God, not a rabbit's foot. Time and events are in God's capable hands. Verse 12, For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time. You get caught when you don't want it, when it suddenly falls upon them. See, if you love Jesus, it doesn't mean that you will win the race, or you will make the sale, or you will get the scholarship. If you love Jesus, it doesn't mean that you won't get cancer or you won't have a car wreck or you won't get flooded. 
So facing the fact of pain and hardships and suffering and ultimately death ought to make us consider how we're going to live out our lives. So embedded in this section of Ecclesiastes is some really good advice. And Here's the first piece. Live joyfully. Live joyfully. That's in verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Dress for a party. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Put some good smelling cologne on. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Love your honey. All the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Some of us think, you know, God doesn't want us to have any fun. That's simply not true. God is fun. Since you don't know what's going to happen to you, have fun. Since you know bad things are going to happen to you, even if you're a good person, find things in your life that give you joy and enjoy them. And some of us in this room, you've been hit really hard by life. Some of the people we love have been hit hard by life. And we've developed kind of a somber, heavy-hearted approach to living. And we feel guilty if we have a little fun. I get it. I heard somebody say one time, no parents are happier than their saddest child. But that doesn't mean you can't enjoy a nice meal or a smooth fountain pen <laughs> or a date with your mate or a calves win. Right? Every good gift has come from God. And God wants you to enjoy His gifts even in the midst of your pain. Remember, life is like a train track with two rails. One rail is labeled burdens and one rail is labeled blessings. So enjoy those blessings beside the burdens. Live joyfully. Second, live passionately. And that's in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to where you are going, the place of the dead. We're going to die. But the certainty of death ought to motivate us to live life to the fullest. Live with all your might. Life is short. So have a big challenge that makes you work hard every day. Live for something that demands your best. And as you live life under God's hand, and as God puts something in your hand to do, do it with all your might. Whether you're a teacher or a student, whether you're a plumber or a carpenter, whether you're a lawyer or a homemaker, give it all you got. Even if you're cutting grass or washing dishes, do your best because that has been placed in your hand by God to do. Now, some of us in the room, we've been hurt so many times by life. We've just kind of quit. And we've thrown in the towel. And, and, and maybe not on the outside, but on the inside where it counts. I mean, has life punched you in the gut? Well, punch back. I used to tell my kids, it doesn't matter how hard you fall, but how high you bounce. <laughs> live joyfully, live passionately. Now, this is good advice for people that are suffering, especially if all you have is an under-the-sun perspective. But there's a better way to live if you have an above-the-sun perspective, and that's in light of the gospel. Live joyfully, live passionately. This is the best advice that the author of Ecclesiastes can give us. 
I think he gives us good advice, but not great advice. As Pastor Joe said a few weeks ago, it's okay advice, but it's incomplete. Why? He's got this under the sun perspective. I mean, think about it. If you want to learn about technology and philanthropy, then uh, probably reading some stuff that Bill Gates has to say would be a good idea. Or if you want to know some things about finance, probably reading what Warren Buffett has to say is a good idea. Their advice would be good advice. But I've never heard either of them, maybe I've missed it, talk about life after life or Christ. They give good advice, not great advice. Why? All they have to offer is an under-the-sun perspective. So the author of Ecclesiastes, he believes in God, yes, but he has kind of a humanist, skeptical, secular point of view. So we've got to go somewhere else to find the above-the-sun perspective. So let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. And there you're going to find that we're supposed to not only live joyfully and passionately, but we're supposed to live expectantly. 1 Peter is a book about unjust suffering. And like Ecclesiastes 9, 1 Peter 5 begins with a statement about the hand of God. Look at verse 6. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. You can submit to what God has ordained to be happening in your life under the sun right now because you know that one day above the sun, He will exalt you. Remember what Pastor Chad said a few weeks ago? The best way to deal with the awful difficulties around you is to surrender to the awesome God above you. You say, yeah, 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 okay, okay, okay. But I'm hurting right now. I want my relief right now. And I get it, me too. So what can we do? Verse 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxieties on him. Give it to him because he cares for you. Okay, okay, by faith I believe it that he cares for me, but I'm honestly not feeling it. There's just too much pain. And he just kind of feels like he doesn't care. Does God care? Now listen to me. Ever since the very first temptation in the Garden of Eden, Satan's favorite tactic has been to make us doubt that God has our best interest at heart. That his hand is for us. He wants us to doubt that his hand is for us, not against us. I mean, who's telling you that God won't lift a finger to help you? That God is kind of stiff-arming you? Or that God actually wants to wound you. Who's telling you that? Well, look at verse 8. Be sober mind, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You live your whole life believing that God's hand is against you. You just got devoured. The devil ate you for supper. We have an enemy that lies to us about God. You can't trust him. He cares more about her than he does about you. He's not going to lift a finger to help you. You know what? Curse God and die. Don't listen to those lies. Verse 9. Resist him. Say to him, that's a big fat lie, devil. (laughs) Stay firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not the only follower of Christ that's suffering. 
Some believers, many believers in this world are suffering more than you. And their faith is strong and bright and bold. I was reading Oswald Chambers this week and he says this, Self-pity opens our mouths to spit out murmurings and our lives become craving spiritual sponges with nothing lovely or generous about them. Yuck. No sin is worse than sin of self-pity because it obliterates God and puts self-interest on the throne. Verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That sounds like pretty good hands to me. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. And everybody said, Amen. <laughs> We have eternity in our hearts. Because of the gospel, we have eternity in our futures. Do you believe that to be true? See, the narrative or the storyline that you are choosing to believe about your life really matters. Maybe your belief about the fundamental direction of human history or maybe your belief about the fundamental direction of your life is impacting you more deeply than you think. Um, see, some of us, I was reading a book um, by a guy named Bebbington, and he, and he talks about just uh, histiography, how people view the world. And some people view the world like this, that, that everything just kind of keeps repeating itself over and over again. That's one of the big views of people. Another is like, there was once a Camelot, and we'll never get back there. We're on a downward decline, a long downward decline. Other people kind of view world as chaotic, that things don't really make sense. And if you think about it, this is kind of the view that's presented in Ecclesiastes. Circular, we'll never get back to the great things, and things don't really make any sense. There's another view, and it's kind of a linear view. One linear view is because of technological advances and educational advances and medical advances that human history is getting better and better and better. Other people go, yeah, well, I believe in the linear view, but, you know, in spite of the technological advances... Things are getting worse and worse. Just look at the wars, the morality. Everything's just getting worse and worse. But there's a tiny group of people in ancient Israel that had a different view. And their view of history was this. A check mark. That there was a time when God created. But we rebelled and we fell. And then something happened in human history. To reverse the curse. It's the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And he is taking us to a place where things will be better than ever. This is an under the sun perspective. And, and, and this is the view that says you're in the hand of God. And you can begin to view not only the world this way, but what's going on in your life this way. And where are we right now? I'll tell you where we are. We're somewhere here. We're not back to Eden. And we're not where we're going to be. We're in a place where this kind of stuff happens. But it's okay. Because we're in the hand of God. And God is going to make sure that things get better than ever. That's why we're still suffering in this present life. In this life, he gives us problems to correct us, to protect us, to inspect us, 
It's all kinds of reasons why we have problems. Now, remember how we started in Ecclesiastes 9? That all the events and experiences are in the hand of God. What kind of hand does God have? Well, just a few verses about the hand of God as we wrap things up. Isaiah 62.3 You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You know what he's saying here? We are crowns in his hand. Now, a crown isn't something that you toss away. It's treasured. And yes, you may be suffering, but you're still his treasure. The gold in a crown has to go through heat to be pure. The diamonds in a crown have to be cut to be beautiful. He's using the heat of life and the cuts of life to shape you and make you more beautiful and more treasured than you ever dreamed possible. Psalm 95. He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. A shepherd's hand protects and cares for and guides the sheep. But what about my problems in life? Can't the shepherd shield me from those? Well, a shepherd sometimes has to take sheep through the valleys to get to the green pastures and the still waters. We are the sheep of his hand. Isaiah 41, famous verse, Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Things in this life will happen that will scare us, that will disappoint us, that will seemingly weaken us, but His hand helps and holds us. John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father, who is greater than all, no one will snatch them out of His hand. We are held And protected in a double divine grip. Eternally protected. Eternally secure. If you're in Christ, you can't lose your salvation. So what does all this mean? I am treasured because I'm in His hand. I am shepherded because I'm in His hand. I am strengthened and upheld because I'm in His hand. And I'm eternally secure because I'm in His hand. There's no place I'd rather be. Don't see God's hands as hands that are limp. And he won't lift a finger to help or hands that wound or hands that stiff arm you. But see God's hand as hands that love and protect and guide you. Leave everything in God's hand and someday you'll see God's hand in everything. Under the sun put everything in God's hand and one day above the sun you'll see his hand in everything. And some of us are going through a tough time right now and you're going, why me? Why now? How could this possibly be any good? Maybe you're tired and you're broken, you're hurting, and you know passages like 1 Peter 5, but you don't see how humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God will ever exalt you. And God fully understands. See, remember Jesus? He was God who became fully human. He willingly suffered through loneliness and despair and poverty and rejection and abandonment, imprisonment, torture, and mockery. He had a big long list over here on this side of the board. On the cross, he was forsaken by his Father in heaven. It was a cosmic pain that we can't possibly imagine. Why did he do it? It It's because he came on a rescue mission. He came to reverse the curse. He came to move things in an upward trajectory. That's why Jesus came. To end the rebellion. To pay the penalty for our sin. To end evil and suffering without having to end us. 
and to have his hands pierced for our transgressions. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller writes this. If we ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus. We still do not know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. Whatever you're facing that is confusing and hard and painful, hear Jesus say to you, I know you sometimes don't feel my love, but look at my hands. They are scarred for you. My nail-scarred, resurrected hands prove you can trust me. They prove that I can turn the worst into the best. So put your hand in mine. Put your pain, your problem, your hardship. It doesn't change the fact that in my hands you are treasured, shepherded, strengthened, and made eternally secure. And right now, You might not feel that my hands are caring for you, but in heaven one day you will walk hand in hand with me and you will understand how everything worked together to give you a life better than you ever dreamed possible. Now, Who wouldn't want to put their hand in the hand of somebody like that? Maybe you're here today and and you've never trusted Christ. If you've trusted Christ here, pray for those that are here that haven't. And maybe you need to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And the program on the screen is a prayer. It's no magic prayer. But you can receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you can pray, Dear Lord, I admit that I have at times questioned your care for me. And I have sinned in my attitudes and actions towards you. But thank you that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, I can be forgiven of my sins. I place myself in your hands. I trust you in the midst of my suffering, even though it often doesn't make sense. Father, hold me forever in your wise, loving, good, sovereign hands. In Jesus' name, amen. And listen, if you prayed that prayer, we've got a program. It looks like this. On the inside, it says response card. You can check a box. Let us know that you prayed because we'd love to help you grow in Christ. J.R.R. Tolkien's book, Lord of the Rings, uh, Sam discovers that his friend Gandalf is not dead, as he thought, but alive. And here's what it says in the book. Sam cried, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music, like water in a parched land. And as Sam listened, it fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he'd ever known. Question, is everything sad going to come untrue? Answer, yes. Because in God's hands, even the things that have broken us will be transformed to restore us to a place better than ever. So today I want us to go through a little practical exercise that will help us put things that we struggle with into God's hand. Remember Jesus prayed on the cross, into your hand I commit my spirit. So I want you to Hold something, something that's hard, that's difficult, that's painful in your life. I want you to hold it. So come on, come on, people. Let's go. This is not hard. I'm not going to ask you to stand up and preach. Maybe. Now hold, hold it. 
And then we're going to say together, into your hands I commit my, and then you're going to release it. Ready? Here we go. Here we go. Into your hands I commit my, I don't know what yours is. I know what mine is. What if you, what if you did that every day, several times a day, for the next week or the next 30 days? I just wonder if you might start trusting God more. The great hymn writer William Cooper had every reason to believe God was against him. He lost his mother when he was six. He had an unhealthy relationship with his father that may have contributed to his lifelong struggle with depression. He courted a woman for seven years and then was engaged. And just before the marriage, her dad said, no, never married after that. He attempted suicide several times. And one of those times he was placed in a mental health hospital. He came across a Bible on a bench in a garden and he saw the goodness of Jesus, the sufficiency of the Savior. And he gave his life to Christ. Later he met John Newton, the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. And then Cooper wrote us, they wrote a hymn book together and Cooper wrote a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I just want to read a couple of lines from that hymn and then we're going to sing it together. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Amen.